Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 20th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. We'll begin with the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. Then today is going to be mostly sunny and mild with a high of 26. Wednesday will also be mild with clouds and sun with a high of 52 and a low of 33. Thursday will be mostly sunny. It will be breezy and mild and again with high temperatures in the 50 with a high of 51 and a low of 29. Friday will be partly sunny and mild with a high of 49 and a low of 24. Then Friday will be the warmest day yet with uh, it'll be plenty of sun and it'll be a high of 59 and a low of 33. Our first front page story is about the state video game tournament for high schoolers. Sloan, Iowa. Westwood High students are celebrating a state tournament trip for the school's newest sanctioned activity. The district's esports team has qualified for the Iowa High School Esports Association state tournament. The varsity squad as the number one seed in its division is going into state undefeated. The JV team compiled a 4-2 record during the season. Westwood is set to compete at 1.30 p.m. Wednesday at the state tournament in Marshalltown, Iowa against New London. Four other Siouxland schools, Okaboji, Sheldon, Spirit Lake, and OABCIG will also be competing at the eSports event. Westwood Esports head coach Stephen Schaefer said 14 Westwood students have been competing since December 2023 playing the video game Rocket League. I thought this is going to be fun because I've always been a gamer and I know that esports is up and coming. Lots of colleges have it. It's a chance for a lot of kids to do something if they didn't have this, Schaefer said. He returned to Westwood this fall as a secondary science teacher and wrestling coach after teaching at Maple Valley Anthon Oto Middle School. Lucky that I just happened to get hired at the same time we were doing this, Schaefer said. The IHSEA currently offers a fall, winter, spring season where all comp competition is virtual. Each season lasts eight weeks with four additional weeks for the postseason for teams that qualify, according to the IHSEA website. The length roughly mirrors that of an athletic season. At home, I like to play video games a lot just on my free time, said Westwood High Senior Carson Topf. My main sport is basketball, but I had a season-ending injury. I tore my ACL in the very first scrimmage, so video games is what really kept me going mentally and physically, I guess you could say. Topf is an, said it's an honor to be going to state. This gives an opportunity for more people to be involved in their school and let the community show that you can be great in different ways for the school, he said. It's amazing. On the Rocket League website, the game is described as a high-powered hybrid of arcade-style soccer and vehicular mayhem. It's a very skill-oriented game, and it's a tough game. I am not good at it yet, said Schaefer. They have worked their butts off. They're not going to be good if they don't practice. Nico Jutzler is an exchange student from Bern, Switzerland, attending classes at Westwood this year. I heard about the team from my host brother. I had never heard of that in my life. I was excited to play video games at school. We don't have that at home. A teammate, Taylor Steinhoff, is looking forward to the state tournament. It's crazy. I used to just play Rocket League for fun. I didn't think we would ever have a chance to play on a competitive level. Logan Bada 
is a member of the Westwood wrestling team, but has embraced the esports world because of the new challenge it presents. The team gathers three days a week for practice and competition in a dedicated space at the high school. During those practices, teammates will frequently play each other. We will compare our skills, what we do good, what we do bad, and we'll work on them, Beta said. It's competitive, but it also helps us get better. He said gamers need to work at their fine motor skills, hand-eye coordination reflexes, and reaction time. What else does it take to excel at the game? Uh, Beta said, same as everything else, practice. He is looking forward to state. It's exciting. When I joined up, I just thought it would be for fun. But we started winning everything. It was like, well, now we can have a chance to go to state. That's pretty cool, he said. Schaefer is treating the trip to state just like the district would for any other athletic activity. We are getting state shirts. We are putting their names on the back. It means something. It is special. I am making them do a send-off. They don't want to do that send-off, Schaefer said. The next game on the IHSEA schedule is Mario Kart 8. Schaefer said 24 students have signed up to play that iteration of the classic Nintendo game. That is going to be very fun to get everyone involved, he said. Fans can watch the state tournament on the IHSEA YouTube channel. And now we will have a couple of stories from the Des Moines Legislature session that's in, um, happening right now. Our first one is lawmakers look at options for opioid settlement money. Iowa has $26.8 million in funds from drug makers. Iowa lawmakers are beginning the process of spending billions of dollars obtained in lawsuits against companies over their role in the opioid epidemic. Under Senate Study Bill 3178, advancing in the Iowa Senate, three-quarters of the money in the state's opioid settlement fund would be directed to the state Health and Human Services Department. The remaining money would go to the Attorney General's office. Iowa has $26.8 million in the fund from settlements from cases against major opioid manufacturers and retailers, according to the state treasurer's office. The bill would split that money this year, giving 75% to the HHS department and 25% to the attorney general's office. The money can be used to pay for opioid addiction, addiction treatment, prevention and training for law enforcement and first responders. It can be used for alternative courts and pre-arrest diversion programs. The state is expected to receive around $144 million over the next several years, according to state Senate Republican estimates. Half of that money is allocated to the state, while the other half goes to local governments. Going forward, the HHS department would be receiving an estimated $3 million a year, while the Attorney General's office would be receiving $1 million until 2039. Iowa, along with most other states, has received settlements from Johnson & Johnson, Teva, CVS, and Walgreens, among other companies. While the companies did not admit wrongdoing, the lawsuits alleged they deceptively marketed the addictive pharm pharmaceuticals and did not follow precautions to prevent abuse. Aggressive marketing about prescription opioids like oxycodone led to an explosion of prescriptions of the drugs for pain management starting around 2000, along with rising overdose deaths. Prescriptions peaked around 2010, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and have been decreasing since 2012. 
Former Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller in 2021 announced his office would spend $3.8 million in settlement funds on a partnership with the University of Iowa Healthcare on the Medication Assisted Therapy Program for Addiction Treatment. Senate Republicans advanced the bill out of the subcommittee on Monday, making it eligible for debate in the full Appropriations Committee. By directing the opioid settlement funds to the two departments, the Senate bill would give them broad leeway on how to spend the money as long as they follow the requirements of the various master settlements. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed a separate bill in the House that would instead fund specific programs using $20 million from the settlement fund. House Study Bill 689 would include spending on the following projects. $3 million for various addiction prevention, treatment, and naloxone programs. $650,000 surveillance of use and overdose mapping. $11 million to expand infrastructure for recovery providers and recovery housing. $1.5 million for scholarships, workforce training, and employment. $1 million for peer support in emergency rooms. $3 million for youth substance use treatment campus. Some representatives for healthcare organizations said during the Senate subcommittee meeting they preferred Reynolds' bill over allowing state agencies' authority to spend the money. Our members are a little bit nervous about not having any specificity within the language of the bill about what, specifically, these programs would be, will be funded, said Amy Campbell, a lobbyist for the Iowa Behavioral Health Association. Senator Janet Peterson, a Democrat from Des Moines, said she wanted to know how the Attorney General's portion of the funds would be sent. I have concerns about the framework, only just specifying the percentage, and then there's no breakdown of how the funds will be used from the AG's perspective, as well as HHS, she said. A spokesperson for Iowa Attorney General uh, Brenna Bird said she is committed to com- combating the opioid crisis and saving lives by directing opioid settlement funds toward treatment, recovery, and prevention efforts across Iowa. Senator Mark Costello, Republican from Imogene, who led the subcommittee, said he thinks the agencies, which are already doing work in addiction treatment, would have the best understanding of how to spend the money. I'm fairly comfortable, unless something makes me change my mind, that if we give it to these departments, they will be able to do what we'd like within the scope of the project and for things that they deem effective, he said. Reynolds has also proposed a bill that would reorganize Iowa's mental health and substance abuse treatment networks in the state into a unified behavioral health system. The bill would create seven regional agencies in the state that would provide behavioral health treatment and services. Iowa Republicans Advance Competing Tax Proposals Iowa Senate Republicans advanced Governor Kim Reynolds' legislation that would accelerate previously planned state income tax reductions, but the top Senate Republican on tax policy said legislators in the coming weeks also will advance their own proposal, which includes an eventual elimination of the state income tax. Republicans on a Senate subcommittee Monday advanced Senate Study Bill 3038, the governor's proposed tax bill that would speed up state individual income tax cuts passed two years ago, provide a property tax cut for commercial child care centers, and lower taxes that businesses pay to fund benefits for unemployed workers. Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, the Republican who leads the Senate Ways and Means Committee, told reporters those components will be considered as separate bills in the coming weeks. 
along with his own bill, Senate Study Bill 3141, to gradually eliminate the state individual income tax. Reynolds' bill would accelerate income tax cuts passed in 2022 that started to take effect this year. As is, the law would gradually reduce personal income taxes to a flat 3.9% in 2026. The governor this year proposed lowering the state income tax retroactively to 3.65% this year and 3.5% next year. The proposal would reduce Iowa's state income taxes and thus limit future state revenue growth by $3.8 billion over the first five years. Despite the tax cuts already delivered, Iowa ended this year with a $1.83 billion surplus, $902 million in reserve funds, and $2.7 billion in the Taxpayers' Relief Fund, Molly Severn, the governor's legislative liaison, said during the subcommittee meeting. The state is overcollecting from Iowans, and they deserve to keep more of their hard-earned money. House and Senate Democratic leaders have said further income tax cuts would disproportionately benefit the wealthy while leaving hundreds of thousands of Iowans who pay no income taxes with little to no benefits. Reynolds' office estimates a family of four with an income of about $79,000 would see a tax savings of more than 25% under her proposal. A single mother of two making about $47,500 would would see an average tax savings of more than 42%. The tax cuts would be paid for using one-time money in the Taxpayer Relief Fund. Dawson and Kaufman have proposed investing that money and using the profits to ratchet down the state income tax rate over time, putting Iowa on a path to eliminate the individual income tax. If the trust fund has sufficient dollars and sales tax growth hits a certain trigger, the income tax rates will be automatically reduced. Dawson emphasized the importance of responsible management of the Taxpayer Relief Fund and the need for fiscal notes and a larger public dialogue to ensure responsible decision-making on how best to use the state's budget surplus. We are talking about one-time money, and when it's gone, it's gone, Dawson said. While calling the governor's bill a bold plan, he said Senate Republicans will start to advance their own legislation in the next couple of weeks. And I really do think it's important that we do get fiscal notes for both these pieces of legislation and have a larger public dialogue. Dawson added, we owe it to Iowa since we accumulated those monies in the Taxpayer Relief Fund to really kind of think through responsibly what a long-term plan is. Officials representing Iowa business and taxpayer advocacy groups applauded the governor's bill. It's important to note that all of this is based on a firm foundation of fiscal discipline and the work that you all have done to make sure that the tax reform packages in the past and the ones that are considered this year are always going to be sustainable and forward-looking, said Chris Hagenow, president of Iowans for Tax Relief. We think this is going to make Iowa much more competitive and allow Iowans to keep more of their hard-earned dollars and make Iowa a much better place to live, work, and raise a family. The governor's bill also calls for lowering taxes that businesses pay to fund benefits for unemployed workers. Under her proposal, Iowa would cut the taxable wage base in half and reduce unemployment taxes by about 40%. Reynolds' office says estimates that will save Iowa employees more than $800 million over five years. Helping companies of all sizes prosper, especially small business, Severin said, and making Iowa more competitive. Senate Minority Leader Pam Jochum 
Democrat from Dubuque, who served on the subcommittee, said Reynolds' plan would unfairly shift the tax burden to lower-income uh, individuals and families while providing significant tax cuts to the wealthy. Jocum and representatives for Common Good Iowa and Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO, emphasized the need to invest in quality-of-life issues to attract new workers to the state. They also worried that Iowa's unemployment trust fund will face challenges in the long term if faced with a downturn in the economy and business tax rates aren't increased to keep the trust fund alive. Jokum said business leaders in Iowa are asking for investment in quality of life issues to attract new workers, while child care workers are struggling with low wages and difficulty filling positions. Ann Disher, Executive Director of Common Good Iowa, a liberal advocacy organization, said lawmakers' proposals would blow a huge hole in the budget. Under the 2022 tax changes that are being implemented, we already face enormous revenue threats in education, health care, and other services that help Iowans succeed, Dishers told lawmakers on Monday. And of course, this bill will make things worse and worse faster and will cost about $1.7 billion a year. Iowa lost $57 million in tax revenue in 2022-23 and will lose close to $5 billion over the next five years, about 7.8% of the state's general fund, according to a report by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a progressive think tank that analyzes the impact of federal and state government budget policies. Jokum asserted cutting the income tax won't generate enough economic activity to make up for revenue losses and force the state to rely more heavily on regressive sales tax or property taxes to bring in significant revenue. So I would hope that we're going to slow this down and really spend a lot of time dissecting it and really understanding the long-term impact this is going to have on our state in the years to come, Jokum said. Lamar's man pleads not guilty of murder. A Lamar's man charged with a fatal assault and has pleaded not guilty of murder. Reese Harms' attorney also has asked for the dismissal of one of the two charges filed against his client. Michael Jacobson filed Harms' written not guilty plea Sunday in Plymouth County District Court to charges of second-degree murder and attempted murder. Jacobsma also asked for the dismissal of the attempted murder charge, saying in his motion that Harms can't face murder and attempted murder charges involving the same person and the same acts. Harms, 24, was arrested January 19th after police responded to an assault in which Michael Gomez was found not breathing. Gomez, 44, of Merrill, Iowa, later was revived but died four days later in a Sioux Falls hospital. The alleged incident occurred at the Fieldcrest Apartments, 1122nd Street and Southeast, where, according to court documents, Harms had put Gomez in a chokehold, telling a woman present at the time he was going to choke him till he stopped breathing to teach him a lesson. In his motion to dismiss the attempted murder charge, Jacobsma said Plymouth County Attorney Darren Raymond alleges Harms is guilty on both charges based upon the choking of Gomez. The choking was one continuous act, not two separate incidents, Jacobs must said, so one of the two counts must be dismissed. Harms told police Gomez had come into his bedroom and punched him several times, and Harms responded by putting him in a chokehold with his legs wrapped around Gomez's torso. Harms, who told police he had been drinking, said he believed Gomez had overdosed on meth. The female witness told police Harms became angry and attacked Gomez after Gomez made a comment to him. She said Harms 
choked Gomez for about three minutes before she was able to get harms off of him. We now move to the regular Tuesday column, which is called Five Questions With, and today is Warming Shelter Director Shayla Moore on Homelessness in Sioux City. For roughly 11 years, the Warming Shelter, Sioux City's only emergency shelter, has provided individuals experiencing homelessness a safe place to sleep. At the Sioux City Council's January 22nd meeting, Shayla Moore, a warming shelter executive director, asked the council to allocate funding to the shelter in the next budget year, which begins July 1st. She said the shelter's closure will become a harsh reality if additional funding cannot be secured. Over the years, the shelter, which is located at 910 Nebraska Street, has primarily relied on donations from the public to fund its operational costs. The shelter's monthly budget is around $70,000. Moore talked with the journal about the services the shelter provides and the financial challenges it faces for our latest installment of five questions. Comments have been edited for length and clarity. First question, how many people are currently staying at the warming shelter and how does that compare to other years? And the answer, we are seeing about 140 per night. It's actually been a bit more this year. I think our busiest time last year was actually February 11th. We had 152 people we served that night. We would say between 100 and 120 range prior to that. And this year, the 140 range is pretty normal. That is what we are seeing on a daily basis. That's like 25 more people than typical. Question, why do you think you are seeing more people? Answer, I couldn't answer why. I'm not sure why we have more people at this point in time. And then who are the people who are experiencing homelessness in Sioux City? I get that question a lot. I can tell you, just because I've been at the shelter for five years, we do see some repeat people. But a lot of the people that we are seeing are new faces. We are seeing people mostly from Sioux City. If we do get people who are not from Sioux City, they're from one of the small towns right outside of Sioux City, like Lawton or Moville or Lamars or Brunsville. Places like that that don't have homeless shelters. The majority of our people are Sioux City born and raised. Since the shelter opened, have you just relied on donations to keep the shelter running? Yes, for the most part. In the last two years, we have gotten a grant. It's called the ESG, Emergency Solutions Grants, SAF, Shelter Assistance Fund Grant. It's for homeless shelters. It's really one of the only grants that's out there and available to us that allows us to use the grant for just operations and not a project or something specific. We have gotten that grant the last two years. That has been another source of income, but the majority of our operations has been funded through donations. It's not a specific number that we can rely on each year. We are able to reapply each year. This year, we actually got substantially less than we did last year. It was like $100,000 last year, and we applied again. Same circumstances, and we actually ended up getting $70,000 this year. You never know if that's going to be there every single year. Your budget is $70,000 per month. Why does it cost so much to operate the shelter? All of the costs are like the bare minimum, absolutely necessary needs. We pay our staff, obviously, and that takes up a good portion of those funds. We absolutely could not operate without staff. We operate with bare minimum staff. At some point, when things are more stable and more funding is secure, we hope to bring on more staff so that we can actually meet the needs of all of the individuals in our shelter. 
Our second largest cost is sheets. We get sheets laundered and brought in. They get fresh sheets every single night. The reason we have to do that is because if we don't, then people are bringing in their own things. We've seen bed bug infestations and those kinds of things, which end up costing way more. That's one of our largest costs, and then our utilities and repairs. Our building is a very old building. We do put quite a substantial amount of funds toward repairs every month. Our building wasn't meant to house 140 people a night. We have people showering and laundry, so we have those costs as well. We provide everything that they need for the basic hygienic needs. We have a resident resource and advocacy liaison now. That does increase our costs a little bit with staffing, but there was a gap and our people were not getting the help that they needed. And again, this was five questions with the warming shelter director, Shayla Moore. Former Huskers player accuses ex-coach of grooming. A former member of the Nebraska women's basketball team is suing the University of Nebraska after she was dismissed from the team amid allegations of an inappropriate relationship with an assistant coach. In a lawsuit filed in U.S. District Court on Sunday, Ashley Scogan accused former associate head coach Chuck Love of using his position and influence with head coach Amy Williams to groom her into a sexual relationship. The lawsuit also alleges Williams and Husker Athletic Director Trev Alberts failed to ensure the coaching staff maintain appropriate boundaries with student-athletes and of violating her rights. Skogan was removed from the team and Love was suspended from his coaching duties in February 2022 after other members of the team discovered them together in a hotel room on a road trip. According to the lawsuit, Skogan said Love began grooming her months earlier in the summer of 2021 when she secured an internship with Husker Athletics and was invited to work in his office, spending one-on-one -on -one time with him. Love began contacting Skogan late at night on social media, asking the college student to meet him, and sometimes William's husband, for drinks, the lawsuit alleges. Skogan said she initially declined the invitations, but later accepted, meeting Love in the parking lot of a Costco. At Love's request, Skogan said she brought alcohol with her to a subsequent meeting in the parking lot, according to the lawsuit, where he kissed her and asked her if she had previously ever had an intimate relationship with a coach. Love had already offered and given her mentoring, individual practice sessions, academic coaching, and the implied promises of support of her career, the complaint states. It was now undeniable that Love wanted a sexual relationship. Skogan said in the lawsuit she felt confused and trapped by Love and feared retaliation from Williams, which led her to keep the interaction to herself. Love would share information about discussions among the coaching staff with her, she said. Love, acting in the course and scope of his employment and under color of state law, created the perception for Skogan that he could make her or break her in terms of her participation in the women's basketball team and her future, the lawsuit states. The relationship eventually became sexual, according to the lawsuit, and the two would meet in different locations in university athletics facilities or in his hotel room during road games. Love expected her to become available whenever he texted or messaged her. The complaint indicates Skogan began to suspect others were aware of the inappropriate relationship, but did not know how to remove herself from the situation before the Huskers traveled to Penn State for a February 17, 2022 game. There, according to the complaint, a member of the practice squad represented himself as Love to an employee of the hotel in order to obtain a copy of the room key. 
Two members of the Husker squad later confronted Skogan in Love's room, recording the interaction. Love instructed Skogans to deny anything improper, and he told her that he would talk to Williams, the lawsuit states. Williams called a team meeting before the game, where she allowed other players to interrogate both Skogan and Love about their relationship for hours, but both denied anything improper, according to the complaint. Skogan felt panicked, trapped, and profoundly ashamed, the lawsuit states. She could not, in that setting with Love inches away and watching her, admit the truth of what was happening. Love was suspended with pay before the game, while Skogan was removed from the team. The lawsuit states another unnamed player told Skogan that Love would lose his job if she said anything, while Love encouraged her to claim she was mentally ill. On February 20, 2022, after Nebraska's win over Minnesota, Williams declined comment when asked directly multiple questions about the situation. Williams said, All of those things are questions that, at this time, I cannot really answer. We are going to keep our focus on the team that we have moving forward. Skogan later had a meeting with her parents, Williams and Alberts, in which she said the university employees were motivated to avoid scandal and embarrassment to the women's basketball team instead of protecting a student-athlete. The lawsuit states Alberts did not acknowledge it was improper for coaches to pursue sexual relationships with athletes, and there was no discussion about whether or not Love had acted inappropriately leading up to Skogan being in his hotel room. Alberts later told Skogan and her parents that Williams would decide how the situation would be handled, in which the punishment was affirmed. Skogan said in the lawsuit no investigation was ordered until she started a Title IX complaint on March 11, 2022. The Title IX investigation was later dropped after Loved resigned in May. As a result of her being removed from the team, Skogan lost her housing, access to game film and other athletic amenities, and finished the academic semester online. She eventually transferred to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Skogan is seeking punitive damages, attorney's fees, and other compensation for her physical and mental pain and suffering at a jury trial, as well as other and further relief as this court deems equitable and proper. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 20th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now go to today's obituaries. Steve A. Gardner, 67, of Sioux City, died Friday, February 16th. Services will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 24th. Visitation with the family will be Friday, February 23rd from 5 to 7 p.m. with a prayer service at 7 p.m. All will be at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Burial will be at McCook Cemetery. Peggy Ann Cleave, 71, of Sioux City, peacefully passed away on Wednesday, February 14th, surrounded by loving by loved ones. A memorial service will be held at 2 p.m. on Saturday, February 24th at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Visitation will take place one hour prior at the funeral home. Clayton Wright, 78, of Ottawa, died Sunday, February 18th. Memorial service will be at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 22nd at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Visitation will be one hour prior. Constance M. Wagner, 72, of Salix, died Friday, February 16th. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 23rd 
with visitation one hour prior at the Community Church of Christ at 402 Beale Street in Sloan. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Waterbury Funeral Services of Sergeant Bluff are in charge of arrangements. William Bill Billings, 76, of Sioux City, passed away February 14th. Cremation will take place and no services will be held. Arrangements are by the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. And that's um, completes the obituaries and death notices for today. Man killed in Yankton County crash, Gayville, South Dakota. A, one person was killed and two others injured Saturday in a two-vehicle collision in Yankton County. According to a South Dakota Department of Public Safety news release, the crash occurred at 8.49 p.m. on South Dakota Highway 50 near Gayville, where an eastbound Ford van was traveling east in the westbound lanes and collided head-on with a westbound Chevrolet Tahoe. The van driver, a 45-year-old man who was not wearing a seatbelt, was killed. The driver of the Tahoe was wearing a seatbelt and was flown by helicopter to a Sioux Falls hospital with life-threatening injuries. A passenger in the Tahoe was transported to a nearby hospital with minor injuries. She was wearing a seatbelt. The names of the people involved in the crash have not yet been released, and the crash remains under investigation. Boy seeking pit bull lost during standoff near Remsen. A seven-year-old boy who was abducted last month wants to be reunited with his lost dog. Noah's Hope Animal Rescue is asking anyone with information about Clyde, a great pit bull, to call 712-253-3894 or 712-540-3617. The Sioux City-based nonprofit said in a Facebook post Sunday that the boy's dog was in the field and unfortunately not caught out in the field following the January 30th incident. At 3.40 p.m. that day, an Amber Alert was issued out of Greene County for a black Toyota Tacoma transporting 7-year-old Bryson Duong, the son of Brandon Duong. According to Plymouth County and Woodbury County scanner traffic, law enforcement officers pursued the vehicle, which was reportedly traveling in excess of 100 miles per hour through Woodbury, Plymouth, and Cherokee counties. Brandon Duong, 34, was arrested after a two-and-a-half-hour standoff with police. The standoff took place in the area of 160th and Sunset Avenue between Remsen and Marcus, Iowa. And our next article is from, um, written by Mason Doctor of the Sioux City Journal and is headlined, When Greyhound Racing Was All the Rage. North Sioux City. In the long-ago days when gambling was confined to racetracks, Soldrack reigned supreme. The Soldrack Park Greyhound Track in North Sioux City, just off the southbound lanes of Interstate 29, opened in 1955. Sources differ on the meaning of the Soldrack name. It was an abbreviation either for the Southern Dakota Racing Club or the South Dakota Racing Commission. Archival materials exist to support both possibilities. In the 1950s, Soldrack was one of three racetracks just outside Sioux City and outside Iowa state lines, along with a tri-state horse track two miles north of Soldrack and the Atokad horse track in South Sioux City. And I apologize if I'm saying those names wrong. Gambling was illegal in Iowa at the time, but South Dakota and Nebraska allowed gambling at racetracks. 
Atakad, A-T-O-K-A-D. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. It's the only one that remains. The races are held there only once a year. Its enormous grandstands have been replaced with modest bleacher seatings. Greyhound racing, and to a greater extent horse racing, was hugely popular in the middle of the last century, in part because it was the only legally sanctioned form of gambling in states that allowed it. Smaller greyhound and horse racetracks entered a terminal decline around the time that states began loosening their gambling laws, permitting casinos and lotteries. When the 60-day Greyhound racing season closed at the end of Sodrak's first summer, the Perry Boutrell handle, the sum of all wagers, came out to more than $3.1 million, described as an astounding figure in contemporary news coverage. On the final night of that season, September 15, 1955, a record $120,520 passed through the betting window, surpassing the record set the night before of $101,000. The annual handle peaked at around $26 million in 1984, a rapid reversal of fortune set in not long after that high-water mark. The track reportedly welcomed as many as 25 to 28 busloads of gamblers a night in its better days. There would be huge buses, huge crowds bussed from Kansas City and bussed from Minneapolis, and the parking lot would be just packed, said Jeff Donaldson, 58, who was employed as the track's announcer in the 1980s. Donaldson's present-day home in North Sioux City was built on the former Soldrack property. Beginning in 1960, Soldrack was owned by a colorful, out-of-state gentleman that that year, it was purchased by Jerry Collins, a high school dropout, self-made millionaire Floridian, and state politician. During his lifetime, Collins owned Greyhound tracks in Florida, Colorado, Oregon, and Cuba, along with four circuses. Soldrak was briefly the subject of a race-fixing scandal in the first year of Collins' ownership. On July 29, 1960, a group of three Miami men reaped huge profits by betting on an implausible combination of long-shot dogs. Somehow or another, they had arranged to give barbiturates to the dogs favored to win the races. Three trainers and dog owners were subsequently fined $50. We feel we have uncovered a national betting ring, Collins said at the time. Years after he parted ways with Soldrak, in 1987, Collins made headlines nationwide when he wrote a $1.3 million personal check to the televangelist Oral Roberts. In March of that year, Roberts announced that God had ordered him to end his life with a hunger strike unless he could raise millions of dollars for Oral Roberts University. Collins, who was still active in the dog racing industry, answered that call. Collins sold the track in 1974 to Joseph M. Lindsay, an ex-bootlegger of the Prohibition era who later made millions in legal liquor distribution and dog tracks in several states. The publicity-averse Lindsay lived on the East Coast and wasn't much of a presence at Soldak. The track's day-to-day operations were largely handled by Irving Epstein, the track's manager. A steady drumbeat of news reports indicating that Lindsay had connections to organized crime were denied in 1974 by Alfred S. Ross, Lindsay's nephew and business associate who later co-owned Soldrak. Then, South Dakota Governor Richard Knipe 
said the state investigated the sale of the track and was satisfied that nothing was amiss with Lindsay's background. Lindsay had, in fact, spent a year in prison in 1927 for his bootlegging activities and it had come to the attention of state and federal agencies, including the FBI, on a number of occasions. He also had documented acquaintances with several mafia people, which he acknowledged, still he denied any direct ties. Lindsay, who lived to be 95, unloaded the track before the 1990 racing season. By then, Soldrak was on death's doorstep. Vince Wubker worked at the track as a young man during his latter years. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, his job title for the first two years was public relations. He said, I don't know what my job was, but it involved some writing and also running bets. He later became the track's announcer after Donaldson left. I always called it the Fenway of dog tracks because it was so old, said Wukur, now 57 and a resident of Fargo, North Dakota. Soldrak was just in a good way. It, it was a dump, he added. Soldrak was not the first dog track to operate in North Sioux City. Another had operated near the airfield during the mid-1930s. North Sioux City at that time was called Stevens, South Dakota. That dog track, operated by a firm called the Dakota Racing Stables and Amusements Company, opened in the summer of 1934. On its busier days, the track reportedly attracted more than 3,000 people with as many as eight races a day, according to contemporary journal coverage. A month after that track opened, in August 1934, the Associated Press reported that the legendary bank robber Babyface Nelson, who was gunned down three months later, was spotted at the dog track. The veracity of his alleged visit to the track is unclear, though the Sioux City Police investigated and the Union County Sheriff Tom Collins, who made a nightly check of the crowds at the dog races, told the journal he had not seen Nelson there. In its time, Soldrak was a moneymaker and respectable enough that at the end of the 1971 racing season, Governor Knipe was a featured guest in honor of the track's longtime charitable contributions. The majority of Soldrak gamblers came from other states. In 1981, Jim Masbar, then the Siouxland Chamber of Commerce Administrative Vice President, called Soldrak undoubtedly one of the biggest boosts to Sioux City's economy. Epstein, the track manager, said it was the leading tourist attraction in Siouxland. During its best year, Sodrak would see roughly 300,000 people cross its threshold annually. The track was conservatively estimated to stimulate the Siouxland economy to the tune of $5 million a year, while the state of South Dakota took in $2 million a year in taxes from the racetrack. Sioux City had suffered economic reversals during the 1970s. The past few years have not been thrilling, Epstein said in 1981. Sioux City is so economically depressed, it's a wonder people are even willing to leave their homes. But Soldrak did not suffer at all. We are probably the area's largest industry, Epstein said at the time. The money we generate is staggering. Flash forward to the late 1980s and Soldrak was dying by a thousand cuts. A competing dog track in Council Bluffs called Bluffs Run siphoned the betters from the Omaha and Kansas City metros. Iowa legalized the lottery in 1985, followed by South Dakota. Other states were legalizing dog racing. Soon casinos opened in Sloan and Ottawa, and North Sioux City welcomed video lottery machines, and a riverboat was on its way to Sioux City. 
On the weekends, you would get a decent crowd, Wupker said, of the late 80s and early 1990s. But during the week, you were always reminded by the old-timers how busy it used to be, like in the 60s and the 70s, when they'd bring busloads up from Omaha every night, and it was packed. 1985 was the last year Soldrak still held a vestige of its quasi-monopoly on Greyhound bets in the region. That year, $22.8 million was wagered by 248,793 visitors. A year later, in 1986, only $10.5 million was bet, and the number of visitors had been cut to 125,429. In an effort to woo back visitors, Soderak underwent a refurbishment in 1987, and by 1991, the track installed video lottery machines to compete with the other video lottery terminals in North Sioux City. It was not enough. In 1993, the year the Sioux City Sioux Riverboat Casino came to Sioux City's Riverbank, the track announced it would not offer live dog racing, which had become unprofitable. The state's other dog track in Rapid City ended its races the year prior, and the live dog racing was finished in South Dakota. For a time, Soldrak offered simulcasts of other races, which remained a profitable venture. The track's bleacher seats, kennels, bar, decoy, rabbit, urinals, and all other physical assets that could be moved went on the auction block in October of 1996. The final humiliation came a year and a half later, on April 24, 1998, when Soldrak's Kennel Club building, then in the process of being demolished to make way for new development, burned down. We'll now move to the uh, sports section, and we have some um, stories about girls basketball and um, state. The Sioux City East and Sioux City West girls basketball teams hit the road Tuesday, with each team needing just one more win to qualify for the Iowa Class 5A state tournament. Bishop Helan, meanwhile, will stay in Sioux City Tuesday as they seek to win a return trip to the Class 4A state tournament. Sioux Center, which captured its first state championship as a Class 3A school last season, also will play for a 4A tourney berth after moving up this year due to enrollment gains. The Warriors, who were hard hit by graduation, upset number 7 Lamar 62-48 in the regional finals on Saturday night. Sioux Center will play at Humboldt in the Region 7 Finals at 7 p.m. Tuesday, with the winner securing a spot in the 18 4A state field. Number 3 ranked Helan will host Winterset in the Region 3 Finals at 7 p.m. Tuesday at Old Gorman Fieldhouse. The Crusaders, which, last, which reached the 4A state semifinals last season, returned most of that lineup, plus added star freshman Melina Snoozy, their leading scorer this season. Helan breezed past Storm Lake in the regional semifinals, 72-47, Saturday night as Snoozy connected on six three-point shots, putting her in a tie with four other Crusaders for the second-most trays in a game. Sioux City East will face Ankeny Centennial at Ankeny in the Region 5 semifinals at 7 p.m. Tuesday. Despite a modest 13-8 record, Centennial is ranked number 5 in 5A. The Black Raiders, who fell short on the road in the regional finals last season, cruised past Ames 75-29 at home in the regional semifinal Saturday night. 
Sophomore guard Trish Miller led the Black Raiders with 20 points, and Alex Flattery and Hudson Ranshaw added 17 points each. Flattery also pulled down a team-high nine rebounds. Ankeny Centennial advanced to the regional finals with a 64-30 win over Sioux City North Saturday night. The Stars finished the season 5-17. Sioux City West faces the tough task of knocking off number one ranked Johnson on the road in the Region 1 final at 7 p.m. Tuesday. The Wolverines advanced to within one game of the state tournament with a 61-55 win over Council Bluffs Abraham Lincoln in the regional semifinals at home Saturday. Johnston advanced with a 79-23 pasting of, North De- of Des Moines North Saturday night. And now more girls basketball for Class 2, 2A and 1A. Hinton, Central Lions, Sioux Central, and Westwood have moved within one game of the Class 2A state basketball tournament, while Rebson St. Mary's is also just a game away from a return trip to the Class 1A field. The five area schools advanced along the tournament trail after posting wins in a regional semifinal Friday night. In a rematch of a 2A regional final last season, number 7 ranked Central Lion and number 10 Hinton will collide in the Region 7 final Wednesday at Unity Christian High School in Orange City. In last year's game in the same gym, the undefeated Lions jumped out to a 23-7 lead after the first eight minutes en route to a 61-33 route of the Blackhawks. Central Line reached the 2A title game, losing to two-time defending champion Dyke New Hartford. Central Lion lost some key players to graduation, but returned others, including All-State Post player Desta Hugendorn. Hinton returned most of its regular rotation, including its leading scorer, sophomore Bailey Bovey. Number three ranked Westwood, which brought back most of its roster from last season's state-ranked team, and also returned leading scorer Addie Johnson from a season-long injury, will face Exera EHK in the 2A Region 2 final at Denison on Wednesday. The Rebels, looking to advance to the state tournament for the first time since 2001, were upset by Woodbine in the 2023 regional finals. Sioux Central, which fell to Sibley O'Shaden 76-57 in the 2A Regional Finals last season, also will have another chance to advance to state. The number four ranked Rebels will face Pocahontas area in the Region 5 Final at Spencer Wednesday night. Remsen St. Mary's made the state tournament for the first time last season, advancing to the 1A semifinals before losing to eventual champion Algona Bishop Garrigan. The number three ranked Hawks will meet War Eagle Conference foe George Little Rock in the Region 4 final at Sioux Center Wednesday night. And now uh, about the Musketeers. Caden Shahan's two goals, including the game winner in overtime, lifted the Sioux City Musketeers to a 3-2 win over Lincoln at home Saturday night. Sam Court scored the first goal of the game at 11.27 of the first as the Musketeers took a 1-0 lead. Keaton Peters tallied a power play marker early in the second and the two teams stood tied 1-1 at the end of the second. Shahan scored a power play goal before the third period was a minute old, but Lincoln's Jack Pachar's 14th of the year, which came at 6.34, tied it again and it was 2-2 at the end of three periods of play. 
Shahan ended it at 4.48 of the extra session when he went in on a breakaway and snapped a shot past Lucas Massey low on the glove side. Shahan's 31 goals on the season are the most by any player in the USHL. Dylan Silverstein stopped 28 shots for Sioux City, while Massey had 18 saves for the Stars, who saw their winning streak end at five games. The win allowed the Muskies to split a pair of weekend games with Lincoln. The Stars won 4-2 Friday night in Nebraska State Capitol. Lincoln outshot Sioux City by a 41-32 margin and scored three third-period goals. Tate Pritchard's highlight reel goal in the first period gave the visiting Musketeers an early 1-0 lead. Ryan Spinale nodded things up when he scored at 4.44 of the second, but Sioux City held a 2-1 lead after Justin Stupka tallied at 6.09. The Stars, who have now won five games in a row, evened it on Blake Montgomery's 15th goal of the season, which came at the 6.37 mark of the third. Juan Copeland's power play marker put the Stars up for the first time when he scored at 15.08 and Montgomery's second of the game, scored into an empty net at 19.59, closed out the win for Lincoln. And now we'll move from sports to Dear Abby in our first letter. I was recently diagnosed with a progressive disease for which there is no cure. It will affect me physically and mentally as I age. For now, I am treating the symptoms and trying to minimize their effect on my day-to-day life. But this is certainly not how I expected to live out my golden years. I have shared my diagnosis with close family and friends, but until my symptoms become more pronounced, I am choosing to move forward in as positive a way as possible without dwelling on the inevitable health issues that lie ahead. My problem is, some of these friends and family members continually quiz me on the status of my condition. I don't believe I'm in denial, but I choose not to speak or think about my illness every minute of the good days I still have. This disease will take over much of my future soon enough. When voicing these thoughts in response to their queries, I have been met by some with surprise and is perceived as insulting by others who are showing concern for me. How do I convey my desire for privacy regarding my health without offending well-wishers? This problem is sure to become more frequent as the disease progression becomes evident to more people. Signed, Good For Now in Michigan. And the reply. Too many people are endlessly curious. If you prefer to take each good day as it comes and not dwell on or be quizzed about your illness, that should be your privilege. You have a right to some privacy. Ask these well-meaning individuals to not discuss your illness further because when you are ready to discuss it, you will raise the subject. If that message offends anyone, so be it. Dear Abby, my boyfriend just started his first year of college. We have been together for about a year and a half. He isn't super far away, but his mom is restricting us from seeing each other too often. Every time I go to visit him, I pay for my own train ticket. I don't really think my visiting him is affecting her in any way. We both want to be respectful of her and her wishes, but when it's possible to see him, I'd like to be able to. A relationship is hard to maintain seeing each other only once a month. He does come home for breaks and some weekends, which I am grateful for. I just don't feel she should be making those choices for us. I want to communicate to her about this, but I don't want to seem disrespectful or rude. So what should I do? Signed, three is a crowd. And the response. 
Your boyfriend's mother wants to be sure her son concentrates on his education with as few distractions as possible. She may also be fearful that the two of you are becoming intimate before you are mature enough to manage the consequences. If you are smart, you will refrain from having the discussion you are contemplating. If the visitation schedule is too restrictive, your boyfriend is the person who should talk to his mother about it. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 20th. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access the recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening. <music>